Throughout the centuries, many authors have described a worldview consisting of a dualistic reality. In other words, there's one reality that we all interact with in the physical realm. We experience it, and we know that. But that there's another reality that is unseen. And that unseen version is one of a higher quality and is often viewed as perfection. And Bible readers may feel right at home with that description, but you may be surprised that the current biblical worldview may have had some of its origins in ancient secular philosophy. Well, welcome back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. This is Greg Hall. Thanks for coming back. I really appreciate it every time you choose to listen to what I have to say. And I think today you're going to be challenged a little bit because we will be briefly examining the way just maybe a few authors have possibly influenced your view of the world in which we live. We'll also compare and contrast how some of these concepts, specifically these authors' use of shadows, this idea of of a shadow, how that may interact with the text of the New Testament. And this conversation might be a little bit uncomfortable for some because it may cause you, it might require you, it might demand of you to rethink different aspects of your reality. So before we get into C.S. Lewis and Plato and the Bible text and how all those might be interconnected, at least slightly, I do just want to remind you that I've put together a trip for Israel. We're going next year, so 2024, and it will be in the month of February. All the information is right on both of my websites on the front page, either RethinkingScripture.com or RethinkingRest.com. There's a link to the Israel trip page, and you can get the itinerary. You can take a look at pricing. And if you have any further questions, just use the Connect tab at the top of the page and let me know what questions I can answer for you. And here's the big news about this trip. It's not just me going on this trip and leading this trip. I have secured one of the leading Old Testament scholars in the world right now, Dr. John H. Walton, who recently just retired from his teaching position at Wheaton College in Illinois, and his retirement, therefore, allows him to go on a trip next February to the land of Israel. He and his wife, Kim, who, by the way, Kim is a working archaeologist in Israel. She's gone over there and worked in archaeological digs several summers. So we've got on this trip a leading Old Testament biblical scholar, a working archaeologist, and me. (laughs) And I'll just let you rank those in any particular order that you see fit. But those will be the people taking charge and speaking into all the different sites that we'll see as we travel throughout the land of Israel. I'm very excited about this trip. We've only got a few spots left. They have been filling up. So maybe it's you that wants to go and needs to find out more information about this. Go to my website, RethinkingScripture.com. Find out about it. But if it's not you, maybe you know somebody that's been talking about going to Israel. Maybe you know a Bible nerd that would love to spend a week in a foreign land walking around Bible archaeological sites and hearing from experts in their fields. Who do you know that needs to go on this trip? I believe God's brought this trip together in a unique way, and he's got several people in mind that still need to sign up. So let's help get the word out and let me know if I can be of help in any way. Enough of the announcements. Let's get back to our podcast episode. Today is episode 76, and it is entitled C.S. Lewis and His Platonic Christianity. And those of you maybe more familiar with Plato and some of his writings and his philosophic thought, that might not be a shocking title for you. But if you're not familiar with Plato, you might be wondering what in the world is today's episode going to be about? 
Well, let's just start with a timeline a little bit. So in the ancient world, we've got the Old Testament written over hundreds of years. And then eventually the writers stop writing what has become our Old Testament. And there's a period of time, a long period of time, several hundred years, where there's nothing written in the biblical record. And this is that one page that you flip over from the Old to the New Testament in your Bibles. That one page represents several hundred years. And it's in that intertestamental period where Greek philosophic thought really comes into its own. Philosophers like Heraclitus and Socrates and then Plato come onto the scene in this intertestamental period, and they build on the philosophic thought of their predecessors, and each one of them introduces something new to the conversation. And it's also during this time that you've got leaders conquering large portions of the world. Alexander the Great conquers a large portion of the world, puts it under his banner. And Alexander was also schooled early on by Aristotle, who followed Plato. So not only do you have, for the first time really in human history, large portions of the population at any given time being ruled by one leader, one nation, but you also have not just from a political standpoint, but you've got a philosophy a worldview also being presented, and those ideas are spreading throughout the world faster probably than they've ever had a chance to spread before. And it's into that world that Jesus was born. By then, Rome had taken over, and Greek philosophic thought had had several centuries to be digested by the population. So, all that said, When it comes time for the New Testament authors to write the story of Jesus, they're writing it into a context that was different than the context of the Old Testament. And because of that, their cultural river that they're swimming in, that's constantly moving, just like our cultural river is, they're swimming in a cultural river that needs to understand and distinguish between secular philosophy and a biblical worldview. The story of Jesus needs to get out to the world, the truth of what God is doing. And it only makes sense that they're going to speak in a tone and a language that their readers would be able to understand. So today what we're going to do is take a look just briefly at some of the things Plato introduced and other secular philosophers built on and laid the foundation for that may have influenced how the gospel was described in New Testament times. And then, interestingly enough, we're going to jump way forward into our more recent past (laughs) and take a look at some of C.S. Lewis's work. Because Lewis was not only greatly and profoundly influenced by the Bible— but he was also greatly influenced by Plato. And you might be sitting there thinking, but I've never studied Plato. I have no idea what he thinks. I have no idea what he thought. I am not platonic in my way of thinking. But if you've ever read C.S. Lewis, odds are you've picked up a platonic version of Christianity without even knowing it. You've absorbed some of the Greek philosophy, dualistic mindset that has pervaded our worldview as believers, and maybe more importantly, our understanding of what the afterlife will be. And I hope it's a fascinating discussion for you, because these are the types of things that really float my boat. And for today's episode specifically, I'll be referencing a journal article by Richard L. W. Clark, and this was written back in 2017 in the C.S. Lewis Journal, and the title of his article is The Neoplatonic Christianity of C.S. Lewis. We'll get into that in just a minute, and I'll be referencing that article quite often. But before we do, let me just read you a brief bio 
that I got from uh, the internet. And specifically, I have ventured into the world of AI. So what does ChatGPT have to say about Clive Staples Lewis, known as C.S. Lewis, was a British writer. He was a scholar and a Christian apologist who lived from 1898 to 1963. He's best known for his works of fiction, including You all know it, the Chronicles of Narnia series, which has become a beloved classic of children's literature. Lewis was also a professor of English literature at Oxford University, where he formed a close friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien and was a prolific writer on Christian theology and apologetics. Lewis's writing has had a lasting impact on popular culture and Christian thought, and his legacy as a storyteller and thinker continues to inspire readers around the world. So that's Clive Staples Lewis, little bio. My guess is that if you're listening to this podcast, you may have been influenced by something that C.S. Lewis has written. Maybe you saw a movie that one of his books was made into. Maybe you've just read a little snippet out of a diary that he wrote. Maybe you've heard somebody else talk about his writing. There's not many people that have escaped the pen of C.S. Lewis. And in a similar way, now we're going to go back centuries and centuries and be introduced to this gentleman known as Plato. Plato was a Greek philosopher who lived from 428 B.C. to about 348 B.C. So get this. He was a student of Socrates and a teacher of Aristotle. And Aristotle, again, is the one that spends time with the young Alexander the Great. And Plato is widely regarded as one of the most important figures in Western philosophy. Plato's writing, which takes the form of dialogues, They cover a wide range of topics, including metaphysics, ethics, politics, epistemology, and he is particularly well-known for his theory of forms or ideas. It's these forms or ideas that posits that there is a realm of eternal and unchanging abstract entities that underlie the physical world and that can only be grasped through reason and intellect. Plato's philosophy has had a profound influence on the development of Western thought, and his ideas about justice and morality and the nature of reality continue to be debated and studied by scholars and thinkers today. So it's these two authors, Plato and C.S. Lewis, that we're going to be focusing on today. And I will posit that some of Plato's thoughts, and by Plato, what I mean is those that preceded him in the philosophic discussion, and also those that followed him. But we'll be focusing specifically on some of the writings and ideas of Plato today. And the idea is that some of Plato's thoughts possibly influenced the way the truth of the New Testament was described in a Hellenistic world. And it's this dualistic idea that there's this physical realm, but then there's this other realm in the unseen world that is the basis of what we know as the physical realm. We'll look at how Plato describes that just briefly, and then we'll also take a look at Lewis's progression through thought. Now, I've talked about Lewis's conversion story on this podcast before, back in episode 41, And that's when I talked about the Rethinking Conversion Project. Lewis had this really unique progression because he started in this philosophic idealism, totally atheistic. I mean, he didn't believe there was a God at all. But it was Plato that introduced him to an idealism that eventually led to pantheism, a belief in many gods, and then a belief in theism, which eventually led Lewis to a full-blown belief in Christianity. And one of the things that will be important for today is that we need to realize Lewis connected with Plato before he connected with the New Testament. He understood Plato's thoughts 
as a foundation, and then he progressed through and ended up in Christianity. Lewis's approach to Christianity is very platonic. And odds are, your version of Christianity is highly platonic, whether you realize it or not. Using the brain. Work. So we've laid the groundwork, and let's just dive into Clark's article a little bit and see where he leads us. And it's in that article that Clark actually starts with a quote of C.S. Lewis from his Rehabilitations and Other Essays uh, that was printed back in 1939. It was in that publication that C.S. Lewis said this, To lose what I owe to Plato and Aristotle— would be like the amputation of a limb. And I don't know that any one of us would maybe even say it quite that way, but that type of statement made by Lewis should begin to build an argument that he has interacted with the ideas of these Greek philosophers in such a way that they have become part of him. To remove their thought process would be like taking a limb off of his body. And that's because, like I mentioned before, Lewis had this progression of thought that happened over a long period of time in his life. And he describes that progress in The Pilgrim's Regress, written in 1958. Lewis says this, The intellectual side of my own progress had been from popular realism to philosophical idealism. And then he says, I went from idealism to pantheism, from pantheism to theism, from theism to Christianity. And Lewis says, I think this is a very natural road, but I now know that it is a road very rarely trodden. So Clark begins his article with those two statements to kind of lay a groundwork. And then he says this, it is certainly no secret that C.S. Lewis was an avowed Christian. It has often been noted, too, that he was a Platonist. However, what has not been explored sufficiently, if at all, are the precise ways in which the Christian and Platonic elements of his thinking intersect to form a unique, powerful, and persuasive worldview that marries religious belief with philosophical critique. And then Clark says, in what follows, and this is the content of his article, I shall attempt to show how Lewis's fusion of Platonism and Christianity gives rise to his belief that the physical universe is not all there is, but rather transposes, as he terms it, a greater non-physical or spiritual reality and is, as such, part of a divinely ordained, orderly, and purposeful scheme of things. So Clark is really just going to be taking a look at what does Lewis believe uh, from a, a platonic standpoint? What does he believe from a Christian standpoint? And how did those two thought processes melt together in his presentation of what ended up in his Christianity being a divinely ordained, orderly, and purposeful scheme of things? And if you've been listening to any previous episodes, you recognize some of those words from things I've been saying, that when we look as Christians at our worldview, we come to the understanding of the world in which we live as having been put in order and being purposeful and being divinely ordained. And although it may be somewhat surprising Some of those things are very platonic in the way that they're stated. So first, let's just dive a little bit into Plato. And specifically, we're just going to talk about Plato's cave just for a minute. It's a very familiar story. I've talked about it in my book. I've talked about it on the podcast before, so we won't spend a ton of time. But there's kind of a foundation in Plato's cave that is an easy jumping off point to explore this idea of a dualistic worldview. So going back to Clark's article, he says this, 
Plato believed that the physical world is not all there is, and beyond which there exists a non-physical reality to which the former is connected. To be precise, Plato is of the view that the physical world and all the various ever-changing and imperfect things therein, both tangible and intangible, are a reflection of the so-called world of ideal forms. That is, a world consisting of the unchanging, perfect ideas, the ideal forms or essences of all things. This world is an ideal world in both senses of the word. That is, it is a world that consists of ideas rather than matter, as well as being a perfect world. Plato reasons that this perfect world must exist even though no evidence of its existence is reported by our senses. Because the ideals and the ideas of perfection possessed by human beings simply could not be derived from the imperfect world which they inhabit. So Clark there is just laying the groundwork for the way Plato looked at the world. It's this idea that we live in this physical world and we have things in this physical world that remind us of perfect ideals that don't exist in this physical world. What he ends up calling them is shadows. They are shadows of ideals that do exist in an unseen, non-physical realm. And just by that description alone, some of you are thinking, well, that sounds a lot like my idea of heaven. And (laughs) that's where we're headed with this whole thing. And it was Plato that wrote about shadows as a metaphor in his work, particularly a book called The Republic. And it's in this work that Plato uses the allegory of the cave to illustrate his concept of reality and knowledge. So in this allegory of the cave, it tells a story of a group of prisoners. They're chained inside this cave and they are forced to face the wall. That's all they can see. Behind them, there's a fire that casts a shadow on the wall. And the prisoners take those shadows. That's the only thing they can see. They take those shadows to be reality. They can't see the objects between them and the fire that are casting these shadows. And so they believe that the shadows are the only reality. And most importantly, they don't realize that the shadows in front of them are a representation of a true reality that exists behind them. And this is the analogy that Plato gives in his book, The Republic, that sets up this dualistic worldview, that there's the physical world in which we interact with. We have ideas of what might be behind us, but some of us are thinking of these things that we're interacting with in the world as the reality themselves. But his premise is that those aren't the real things. Those aren't the substance that are casting the shadows. Now, remember, in the timeline, Plato comes onto the scene in this intertestamental period, and there's several hundred years for his ideas to be absorbed into the population. And because conquerors are gathering large populations of the world together in that time, this Greek philosophic thought of a dualistic worldview is the way many people are thinking when Jesus comes on the scene. And so it might be surprising for some of you to think that, oh, the New Testament writers were influenced by the world in which they live, but that's just the only thing that makes sense. And so when they describe the truth of who God is and who Jesus is in his ministry, they would have sought to describe it in such a way that the people of their era would have completely understood. So as I said before, I have written a little bit about this in my book, Rethinking Rest, 
And now I'd like to just read a little bit from uh, my own book, specifically regarding this idea of how the New Testament may have been presenting the truth of who Jesus is in terms of uh, this dualistic, platonic worldview. And in my book, I I say this. (laughs) Two books in the New Testament specifically present the law of Moses, uh, so that's an Old Testament idea, as the precursor of something much better that exists in the heavenly realm. In the book of Hebrews and Colossians, so these are New Testament books now, the law of Moses and the ministry it details are described as shadows. These references to shadows certainly include the idea of foreshadowing, something that was to come in the future, but they also include the specific nuance that the law is a tangible representation of something that exists in the unseen spiritual realm. The author of Hebrews mentions this idea twice. The first describes Jesus as a priest whose position is like the Levites who served under the law of Moses. So this from Hebrews 8, 4, and 5. Now, if he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. That's Hebrews 8, 4, and 5. And the argument there is that Jesus would not be a priest like the Levites because the Levitic priesthood is a copy of something else. And we have come to know it to be a copy of Jesus's priesthood. That exists in an unseen realm, a spiritual reality. Back to my book. (laughs) The second mention of the law's shadow ministry is found just a couple chapters later in Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. These two passages, they suggest that the summative purpose of the law of Moses was to shadow a heavenly ministry that would be fully realized at a later date. They suggest that the heavenly ministry would not only surpass the law, but truly explain the reason it ever existed. So those two passages out of Hebrews, and now we're going to go on to the third mention in the New Testament of shadows, which is found in the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians. So chapter 2 of Colossians begins by commenting on how humanity was caught in the death grip of sin, but that Jesus saved us from that condition. The message of the Old Testament is that humanity was outside of God's rule and order, and that's described as dead in transgressions, but that Christ had reestablished the proper rule and order for humanity to follow. And that's described in Colossians when he says, made you alive together with him. It's this discussion that builds to the argument leading to that shadow passage in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Let me just read it now. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So here's my paraphrase of that passage. Hey, New Testament believer, (laughs) based on the canceled debt and the victory of Christ spoken of earlier in my letter, no one is now able to judge you in regard to the following things found in the Old Testament law. How to eat, when and where to gather for worship, and other ritual items that regulate the rhythms of life. Those things are mere shadows of a greater ministry. The substance that casts those shadows is Jesus. 
And I conclude that thought of my book by saying this. This passage from Colossians prompts us to look back into the Old Testament and specifically the ministry of the things mentioned and see shadows or maybe a vague outline which represents the ministry of the substance. And Colossians tells us that Jesus is that substance. The full meaning of those shadow ministries can only be found in him. So in other words, Jesus is the shadow caster. So breaking away from my book, there are some who see these biblical authors in the case here of Hebrews and Paul and his letter to the Colossians. Some people see them interacting with the Hellenistic worldview of their day. In other words, the authors of the biblical text are describing truth in Platonic terms. And here's a distinction that's important. They're not copying Plato, but they're using Plato's well-understood, bifurcated view of the universe to bring more clarity to the one true God. And I like the way John Walton in some of his works describes this idea of biblical authors using the culture in which they lived to describe truth. He often describes those authors as being embedded within their culture, but not indebted to their culture. And within that description is a very important distinction, because a lot of Bible believers don't want to go down a thought progression that says the biblical authors were indebted to thought progression that was in the society. In other words, they're just borrowing from the society. They are not indebted, but they were embedded, which means they used what they knew about their culture to describe the truth that had escaped their culture. And it's because of some of these thoughts that many believers today have adopted a platonic version of Christianity without even knowing it. For instance, if your idea of heaven is that it's a perfect place that you will go and live forever with God, if that's your idea of forever, then you've likely been influenced by Plato. So let me just clarify, the Bible does speak about an intermediate state where we will be disembodied and in the presence of God. And what do I mean by that, (laughs) disembodied? Uh, When our body dies, the physicalness of our body stays here and gets buried or cremated or dispersed. It stays here in the physical realm, in other words. And we believe that our soul survives death, that it goes to be in the presence of God. And that word presence there is almost deceiving because it's the only way we really know how to describe being with somebody. But if it's just our soul, our soul doesn't really have a physical presence like our bodies do, but it does have a presence. And God has a presence in a non-physical way as well. And that's why in the incarnation, when Jesus put flesh on, that was a unique thing that happened in time and space. But it's this disembodied idea of being in the presence of God that the Bible describes as just a temporary situation. So it's an intermediate state. People who die prior to the second coming of Christ, when the soul and the body will be reunited, they're in this intermediate state. They're in the presence of God. But I don't know exactly what that looks like. Even that description, what it looks like, it doesn't look like anything in a physical way. Our language begins to fail us when we describe this intermediate state. But that's not where the Bible ends. That idea of the soul and the body being separated is just a temporary situation, according to the Bible, which also teaches about Jesus' second coming, where our spirit will be reunited with a physical body and live again on a new physical earth. 
And it's this second part of the story, the continuation of the story, the, the second coming of Christ and his return to earth that's not very platonic at all. And what do I mean by that? Well, Plato did not believe that the flesh or the body itself was inherently bad. He did believe that the physical world, which includes the body, was only a reflection or a shadow of the true reality. So according to Plato's philosophy, the higher reality would never return back to earth. And I run across this often when I talk to people about what heaven might be like. And collectively, it just seems like we've got this idea probably propagated by 1970s cartoons when cartoon characters would pass away and they would float up into the sky and start playing a harp laying on a cloud. And we somehow have come to think that the rest of our existence, according to a biblical worldview, will be in a disembodied state somewhere in an unseen realm that we don't fully understand. But that's not the entire story that the Bible presents. And it's this type of thinking that sometimes slips into other areas of theology without even really realizing it. So on this podcast, we've talked a lot about the concept of biblical rest. And let me just say this, it's very platonic to think of rest as being something that is only available in a higher state of reality. In other words, when we get to heaven. Many people see that as the end goal with really nothing more being offered until we leave this place and we arrive there. But the Bible, when it talks about rest, speaks of it as being available now. There is something today in the physical world that will lead to the rest that Jesus offers. And it's not just a concept that we have to wait for to experience at some end point in heaven. Now, to be sure, heaven will be an end state, but the beginning of the end has already started, and it begins here in the physical realm. And surprisingly, it will also finish in a physical realm where we have jobs to do and things to keep us busy within the structure and order that God has already created using the gifts that he's already given us. So in this last section, we are going to dive into C.S. Lewis a little more. Some of you are saying, when are we going to get to C.S. Lewis? Well, here it is. We have laid out Plato as best we can for now. We've talked about how possibly the biblical authors spoke in platonic terms to describe at least a portion of the truth that Jesus brought to the table in his ministry. And now we're going to take a look at how Lewis interacted with both of those. Because remember, Lewis's road to being a believer in Jesus began with philosophy. And remember, his Greek philosophy was like a limb to him. It had become part of him. And he brought that with him through his progression and his understanding of who Jesus is. And to look back into Lewis, we're going to venture back into Richard Clark's article, again, The Neoplatonic Christianity of C.S. Lewis. And it's in that article that Clark highlights something that Lewis said in Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Lewis says this, Everything God has made has some likeness to himself. Space is like him in its hugeness. Not that space is the same kind as God's, but it is a sort of a symbol of it, a translation of it in non-spiritual terms. Lewis goes on to say, Matter is like God in having energy, though again, of course, physical energy is a different kind of thing from the power of God. Uh, the vegetable world is like him because it is alive, and he is the living God. But life, in this biological sense, 
is not the same as the life there is in God. It is only a kind of symbol or shadow of it. Those are Lewis's words from Mere Christianity. And then Clark, in his article, makes these comments a little bit later. Significantly, Lewis stresses that our conception of this relationship, however conceived and named, comes to us from Greece, where it makes its first effective appearance in European thought with the dialogues of Plato, for whom the sun is the copy of what he called the good, and all visible things exist just insofar as they succeed in imitating the unseen forms. So to illustrate, Clark says, this symbolic relationship that links the spiritual and the natural worlds, Lewis offers an obvious adaptation of Plato's allegory of the cave. And just breaking away for a second, this was really interesting when I found it, because Lewis here is playing his hand. He has written the following story that I'm about to describe, which is an adaptation of Plato's cave. Back to Clark's article. He describes a woman imprisoned in a dungeon who gives birth to and rears a son who has never seen the outside world. To teach him about this other world, she, the mother, draws pictures that have an unintended effect. The son assumes, until he's corrected, that the pencil marks themselves comprise rather than correspond to reality. When the son realizes that this is not, in fact, the case, his illusions are shattered, and the result is sheer incomprehensibility. And then Clark quotes Lewis in his article, and so these are Lewis's words about this uh, analogy. Lewis says, Instantly, the son's whole notion of the outer world becomes a blank, and the child will get the idea that the real world is somehow less visible than his mother's pictures. But in reality, the real world lacks lines because it is incomparably more visible. And then Clark says that the boy in this analogy, in short, is tragically unaware that marks on a page are just simply a transposition of the real world, which is the richer or the higher reality. Lewis's antidote is evidently intended, like Plato's allegory of the cave, to represent a higher abstract truth by means of a lower concrete experience. And the boy's illusion about the drawing is analogous to our own collective hallucination that this physical world in which we live and move and have our being is the true and only reality. Whereas, in fact, it reproduces or embodies, in other words, transposes a higher spiritual reality. So breaking away from Clark, it's this idea that Lewis was highly influenced by Plato and then brought some of the way he was thinking about this dualistic idea of the physical world and an unseen reality of a higher nature into his understanding of Christianity. And it's not that Lewis was making this up. Again, I've even suggested that this is likely what the New Testament authors did when they described the ministry of Jesus within a New Testament Hellenistic cultural river. So some of you are more familiar with Lewis's work than maybe this philosophic discussion that we're having. So to close out today's episode, I've picked a couple different examples, uh, one in particular, but a couple different places from his work where his embeddedness within a philosophic worldview comes through. And more specifically, those of you familiar with C.S. Lewis know that in his works such as like The Last Battle or The Great Divorce or Till We Have Faces, it's in those places where Lewis attempted to describe heaven through presenting different and honestly sometimes competing imaginative or philosophical representations. So he's trying to describe heaven in several of his works, and sometimes it seems like they're competing against each other, like they don't always complement each other. 
So, like, for instance, in Narnia, heaven is ultimate reality, which is unconstrained by earthly existence or the limitations of human experience and imagination. The appearance and nature of these representations in Lewis's writings were motivated by a platonic vision of the world, according to which present realities are shadowy reflections of eternal things. And we'll finish today with this. Lewis movingly sets out this vision, this dualistic vision, in the second to last chapter of The Last Battle, the last book in the Narnia series. And I'll just finish today by reading an extended portion uh, from The Last Battle. Suddenly, Farsight the eagle spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled round, and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there, I've seen it all. Edensmuir, Beaver's Dam, the Great River, Car Parival still shining on the edge of the eastern sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. But how can it be, said Peter, for Aslan told us older ones that we should never return to Narnia. And here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and we saw it all destroyed and the sun put out. And it's all so different, said Lucy. The eagle is right said the Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that is not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and will always be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures, have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course, it is different. As different as the real thing is from a shadow. Or as waking life is from a dream. It's all in Plato. All in Plato. And those words from Lewis from The Last Battle. And in his article, Carter summarizes this way. This real Narnia is, of course, the archetype of our own world that cannot be understood except by reference to it as heaven's shadow or sketch and is approached by reason and the imagination through contemplation of the present world. Using the brain. Work. So, how'd we do in this episode? Are you a fan of C.S. Lewis? Have you ever read Plato before? Have you never thought about any of this in your entire life? Let me just reemphasize and conclude this way. It is not a bad thing to understand the truth of the Bible from a platonic worldview. But the bad thing would be is if we get stuck there and we don't realize that we're actually viewing it platonically. Because some of us have gotten caught in this idea of the afterlife, of heaven, being this place that we will go to in an unseen realm and we don't fully understand it, when in fact the Bible suggests that that's only a temporary state, temporary until Jesus' second coming, when our disembodied souls will be reunited with a physical body in the physical world, and then the remainder of eternity, time everlasting, will be spent in a physical world with physical things to do, 
And it's that physical world that the Bible describes. It's described as a new Jerusalem in the later chapters of Revelation. And the unique idea about this new Jerusalem is the city has its foundation as people. Its gates are people. It's, it's a city of people. But those gates are never closed. There's no reason to close the gates. And the only reason you would close gates is to keep out someone that is an enemy of your way of life. This end state, which is very physical, where the soul and the body are reunited, will be lived in a physical world. It is the higher reality that Plato assigned only to non-physical space. And at some point in my progression of thought, that idea was brand new to me. The fact that from a biblical worldview, we will be spending eternity in a world without enemies, in a world that is running by the rule and the function and order of a God who created it. It's a world that's very different from the one in which we currently reside, and thank God that it is. But it is a physical world, and I can get very excited about living out all of eternity in a world run by the God who made it, using the gifts and talents given to me to bring about and maintain his order. That sounds a lot better than hanging out on a cloud and playing a harp for all eternity. Well, that's all the metaphysical talk uh, that I've got for today. And I would encourage you just to go ahead and visit some of C.S. Lewis's work. He was able to verbalize many things that people have a hard time even just thinking about. And as we close out today, I'll just ask this. Who do you know that needs to hear this podcast? Would you give them a call, send them a text, shoot them an email? Hey, you've got to listen to this episode of the Rethinking Scripture Podcast. Podcast.